Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This morning we're in Romans 5, 12-21 is our passage. There's a movie that came out back in 1991 called Grand Canyon. Uh, you'll recognize maybe some of the individuals there, Steve Martin on the right and Kevin Kline in the middle. That's uh, Danny Glover. Off to the left, the film begins with an incident where Kevin Klein is driving in downtown Los Angeles and he's going through a a bad neighborhood. He got lost and his car breaks down and he's stuck there on the side of the road and this gang starts surrounding his car and he starts getting really scared. And he gets out and he starts talking with the leader of this gang and it's looking like it's not going to go well for Kevin Klein, and at just the right time, Danny Glover, whose character's name is Simon in the movie, Danny Glover drives up in a tow truck and gets out and steps into the middle of this altercation and begins to intercede on Kevin Klein's behalf by talking to the gang member and trying to work out a, a truce, a resolution. And Danny Glover says some pretty profound things, and I want you to see what he says. As he's observing the situation, he says to the gang member, he says, you know what, the world isn't supposed to work like this. He goes on and he says, you know, this guy is supposed to be able to get his car fixed without you ripping him off, and I'm supposed to be able to come in here and help him without having to ask you if I can. And then he finishes this little part of his talk by saying this, everything is supposed to be different than it is. Don't we all agree with that? No matter what your religious persuasion, no matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist, I think anybody would have to acknowledge that things are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. Something has gone wrong. Something has gone sour in this world. When we see immigrants fleeing from Syria under attack, looking for a place to live, we look at that and we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we see people on the streets of our cities harassed because of their skin color, tackled and arrested and sometimes killed, we look at that and we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we see families disintegrating through verbal and physical abuse and divorce, we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we see children dying before their parents, parents grieving the loss of their children, at some level, fundamentally, we realize and know that that is not the way it's supposed to be. And when we just look at ourselves personally, we just look at our lives and the things that we've fought and the things that we've said and the things that we've done and the things that we haven't done, you have to admit, you have to say, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be different. Something's gone wrong. And this passage in Romans 5, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us understand what it is that went wrong. And what he tells us is that there is something that happened long ago that has affected each and every one of us. And we heard from Genesis chapter 3 just a moment ago, and that's the depiction of the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden 
That's what happened. And what Paul is doing here in Romans 5 is giving us the theological explanation, or the theological significance of what happened in that garden. And so that's what Paul is talking to us about here in verses 12 through 21. This is a, a difficult text. Um, Paul's line of argument doesn't always seem to flow so well, so we'll do the best with the help of God's Spirit to work our way through this. Uh, but this is what we're doing, working through Romans one passage at a time, and we arrive at this passage this morning. So if you have that, please rise for the reading of God's Word. It would be helpful for you to have your Bible open before you during the sermon so you can see how these things come out of this text. But let me read now, Romans 5, 12 through 21. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God in heaven, we call on you to pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds as we turn our eyes to this passage of your Holy Word, inspired by your Spirit, and we plead with you for insight and understanding that our faith would be increased, that our hearts would be filled with love, and that you would give us hope in the promises of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we had a Labor Day uh, lunch with Mary's family and uh, was talking to my brother-in-law and he was talking about this website called Ancestry.com. Maybe some of you have gotten onto that and have kind of traced some of your lineage to see where you came from. I became very interested in that and went to Ancestry.com and noticed one of their catchphrases, and, and it's this, millions of stories find yours. Find your story. Friends, this passage here, Romans 5, 12 through 21, is your story. 
and my story. Because Adam is your ancestor and my ancestor. Adam and Eve are our first parents. And so if you really want to go all the way back, Ancestry.com will take you back a few generations. If you want to go all the way back to the beginning, you will arrive here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. <clears throat> so there's two things that I want to show you here today. What we're learning about here is not just what Adam did to ruin things, but also what Jesus did to fix things. And so these are the two points we're going to consider this morning. First of all, the world ruined in Adam, and then we'll consider the world rescued in Christ. So the world ruined in Adam. How did this happen? From ruin to rescue. How did the world get ruined? And we see this here in verses 12 through 14. And there's kind of a chain reaction of events that Paul describes for us here, particularly in verse 12. But here's what Paul says. First of all, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man. So this is the first in this chain of events. Sin enters the world. The one man is referring to Adam. Now, I think I should mention before we move on, because there are some who question whether Adam was a real individual, a real person. Even in the evangelical church, there are scholars who are questioning this now. Um, without going into too much detail, uh, it is my conviction that Adam was a real man, a real person. He lived in history. If there was a camera in the Garden of Eden filming what happened in Genesis chapter 3, it would have picked up a real man and woman in that garden. There's a lot of very important reasons for believing this. I just want to refer to one passage in Luke, just so you can see that the New Testament seems to believe that Adam was a real man. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Luke takes 15 verses from 23 to 38 in chapter 3. Um, and I, I've just got a selection here, but it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. And then he goes on, the son of many others, and then picks up the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Those are all historical individuals, real men who lived. Nobody doubts that. And then he goes on, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is included in this list of real historical individuals. That's very important for us to believe, uh, and I hope you'll see the significance of that as we go on. But here's what Paul's saying. Sin came into the world through one man, through a real man named Adam. But the next thing that happened is that death comes through sin. You see that also in verse 12, death through sin. I think what Paul has in mind here is primarily physical death, although spiritual death was one of the curses of the fall. Paul's thinking mostly of physical death here, and um, more specifically the death of Adam as an individual. And then the third thing that happens is that death spreads to all. And so death spread to all men. It says there in verse 12, as well. This is why we die. God pronounced a curse upon Adam for his sin. That brought death into the world. Not only that did Adam die, but everybody, all of Adam's descendants also died. Uh, we don't need to spend much time arguing that case. The world 
is a graveyard in one sense. You don't have to drive long before you see a cemetery and realize the truthfulness of this. There's a philosopher named Euripides that says no one can confidently say that he will be living tomorrow. And that's true, isn't it? We don't know if we'll even be here tomorrow because of what Paul is telling us about here, the curse of death because of the one man's sin. <clears throat> now, in the end of verse 12, there is a very important phrase. Do you see this? It says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, that seems maybe like a pretty simple little phrase, but there is actually a lot of controversy that surrounds that phrase, and a lot of very different theological viewpoints have come from that. And the question is this. When Paul says, because all sin, does he mean the sins that we commit personally? Is he talking about the actual sins that you and I commit in our lives? Or is he talking about a way in which we are guilty because of Adam's sin, because of the one man's sin? that we are somehow found in Adam to be guilty of sin that he committed and that his guilt is then attributed, imputed to us. I suggest to you that that second interpretation is the proper one. It's the orthodox one. It's the one held by the church throughout the centuries. And I think it's the one that Paul is trying to teach here. And I want to try to explain why I believe that is the case, although I know it might sound kind of strange to your ears. Wait a minute, what do you mean? I'm found guilty because of something somebody else did? I think that's what the passage is teaching us. Now, one of the reasons why is because that verb, because all sinned, it's in a particular verb tense that has to do with a past completed action at a specific point in time in the past. So he doesn't have in mind here an ongoing number of sins committed over time but something that happened at a particular point in time, which would seem to be consistent with the idea of Adam's sin. But I think this is supported even further when you look at verses 13 and 14, because Paul goes on to make this argument, and he says this, verse 13, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So what does he mean by that? Well, when he refers to law here, he's talking about the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai about 1,400 years before Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that sin was not counted, not counted before that law was given. Now, he doesn't mean that nobody was a sinner before the law was given to Moses. He doesn't mean that people were perfect or sinless somehow, because he says right there in verse 13, right, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there was no law. In other words, sin was, not, um, ex sin was not an explicit violation of a written code. That's what he means, because the law wasn't present. Nobody could point to a passage in the Bible that says, thou shalt not blank, and then say, see, you violated that. The law didn't exist in that form. And so Paul is saying, that's what he means when he says that sin is not counted where there is no law. But he goes on in verse 14 to say, but even though sin wasn't counted against them in that way, 
yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So before Moses received the law, it was still the case that people were dying. And so the question is, if people were not sinning in an explicit violation of the law, if that sin was not counted against them in that way, then why were they dying? He goes on in verse 14, sin, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam did violate a very clear command that came to him from God in the garden. You shouldn't eat the fruit. We heard about that again a little while ago. So that's how Adam sinned. What Paul is saying is that these others didn't sin in that way. They didn't reject a clear, direct command of God, either by hearing his voice or written in the law. And yet they died. And I think what Paul is saying here is the reason that they were dying is because they were guilty in the sin of Adam. They were guilty because of the one man's sin. If that's not entirely convincing to you, let me just push you down to verse 14 and look what it says here. It says even clearer. And it's one of the reasons I'm interpreting this passage in this way because I think it's the whole context of this passage. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass, the one sin, eating that fruit in the garden, one act of disobedience, and the result of that was condemnation for all men. All of us have sinned in Adam. We're considered guilty because of the sin that Adam committed. We're also considered guilty because of the sins that we commit personally. But this whole idea, this whole concept is called federal headship. It's where a representative does certain actions that are transferred to those he represents. And it's a very important theological concept that governs so much of biblical teaching. A representative whose actions are transferred to those he represents. This, again, is really hard for us to accept, particularly as kind of Western American individualists who like to think that we are our own person and we make our future and ourselves the way we want to be, quite independent of any group or influence in our lives. That's the typical kind of Western American way. But for people in other cultures, this whole idea of headship is not hard to understand because they saw themselves as people more connected to tribes and groups and countries and nations and families. They saw themselves as part of a corporate whole. It's one of the reasons why we think life groups are important because we're not serving God on our own as individuals. We're doing it together as a group. That same concept informs even our practice of life groups. But federal headship, if you're still struggling with this, this doesn't make sense. Somebody kind of representing me that I didn't choose. You didn't choose Adam to be your representative, did you? I didn't. But he is. Now you think, how does that work? Well, there are uh, examples in our world of how this happens. For instance, how about with legal counsel? Isn't it the case that when you are represented by an attorney, that that attorney speaks on your behalf. And what he or she says in court is considered, in a sense, to be the words that you have spoken. And in fact, you are going to have to deal with the consequences of that person's representation, whether you like it or not. 
And there's even cases where that person might represent you in court when you're not even there. That happens sometimes. Jim, is that right? That happens, right? It does. So that's an example of headship or representation. How about in a situation where war is declared? Uh, at least in our political system here in the United States, it's Congress that declares war. Our elected representatives, okay, the analogy breaks down a little bit there because they're elected, but they're still our representatives and the decision that they would make to wage war, to go to war, is a decision then that we all have to, I don't know if we have to get behind necessarily, but we're going to be affected by that. We're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. I think at least in World War II, if you were to ask an average American citizen, a person, an individual, are you at war with Germany? Are you at war with Japan? That they probably would have said yes. And the knowledge that they are part of a nation whose elected representatives made a decision that now have consequences that come back to them. That's an example of headship, representation. Uh, one last example, just the trait of one's parents. All of us have certain personality traits, intellectual abilities, um, physical characteristics, personality um, traits, attributes that we inherited from our parents. Nobody here chose his or her parents. No one was consulted about who you wanted to be, your mom or your dad. God in his sovereignty made that decision and now you are dealing with the consequences of that. And, and those consequences are both good and bad, right? Because of your parents standing as your representative. Do you see that that's the concept? It's really not that unusual. When you think of Adam sinning and you being held guilty in his sin, it sounds weird. Then you see these other examples and you think, well, you know, actually, that happens quite often. And you'll see how important this is for the gospel uh, in a moment. But here's something I want to challenge you with as we think about this in terms of application. A question that you ought to ask, that everyone ought to ask when you're considering a worldview or a religion or uh, when you're considering the convictions that you'll have about truth and reality, a, a question you need to ask is this. Of all the options that are out there before you, all the religions and all the philosophies, which one of them makes the best sense of reality? That's, that's a really good question to ask. You know, nobody's going to prove to you that Christianity is true. No one's going to prove that it's not true. No one can put that in a laboratory and, and, you know, produce some kind of airtight proof. To whatever degree, you're going to have to go by faith. I want to suggest to you that a good question to ask is, and whatever view you're considering is, does this make sense of what I know to be true in my own experience in this world and in this life? So what worldview makes sense of the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be? I want to suggest to you that Christianity is the one that does it. That the biblical account, and particularly what we're reading here today, makes sense of this. If you agreed with me in my introduction, I'm pretty sure probably all of you did agree, yeah, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Think of what that implies. If I'm going to say the world is not the way it's supposed to be, 
doesn't that imply that the world was once the way it was supposed to be? And that now it's changed, we've fallen away from that? That the world has gone south, the world has been soured somehow? If, if sin, evil, wickedness were in the world all the time, if that's always been the case, then we wouldn't say the world isn't the way it's supposed to be because the world would be exactly the way it's always been. That's the way things have always been. We wouldn't have any sense of it having to be different because it never was different. The biblical account of the fall tells us that it's true. Yes, the world once was good when God created it, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Things were perfect at one time. But Adam sinned, and through his sin, sin came into the world, and death came into the world, and everything went wrong. G.K. Chesterton, a British theologian, says this, the fall is a view of life. It is not only the only enlightening, but the only encouraging view of life. It holds as against the only real alternative philosophies, those of Buddhist, Buddhism or the pessimist or the Promethean, that we have misused a good world and not merely been entrapped in a bad world. See the difference between the two. That's what the Bible is telling us. We, we've been given a good world and we've misused it. And that's why Chester can go on to say happiness is not only a hope, but also in some strange manner a memory. That's why we have this longing for the world to be different. That's why we sense it's not the way it's supposed to be, because it once was the way it was supposed to be. And in our connection to Adam as a corporate whole in the human race, we have this instinctive knowledge that, yeah, things used to be really good. We all have nostalgic tendencies, don't we? We all think, oh, if it were only like it was in the 1950s or the 1980s or whatever, we're always looking back to some pristine, perfect time. And that's rooted in us. I think it's all connected to this memory that we have as a human race of the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. But it went wrong. And the Bible here is saying this is what makes sense of things. This is what explains why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But there's a very important phrase here at the end of verse 14. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you see that phrase? <clears throat> Adam was a type. He was a model. He was a pattern of someone else who was going to come. A representative, another representative, another federal head, someone kind of like Adam, but in a lot of senses very different than Adam. He was like Adam in that he was a federal head, but he was very different than Adam. So we get to our second point here. The world's been ruined in Adam, but the world's been rescued in Christ. And through the rest of this passage, this is what Paul is trying to show us. He's trying to say, yeah, you're guilty in Adam, but Jesus is so much stronger, so much better. Every place Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Every place Adam went backward, Jesus went forward. Everything that Adam ruined, Christ has come to restore. Christ also is a federal head. He is a representative just like Adam. But the work of Adam and Jesus is so very, very different. So look at verse 15. We have this contrast between the work of Jesus and Adam. Verse 15, the free gift 
is not like the trespass. You see, he's setting up this contrast. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. See these two? They're not alike. The trespass was something that Adam did in his unrighteousness, motivated by his rebellion and his selfishness. But here comes Jesus, and he provides what? A free gift that's motivated by grace. This free gift is his righteousness that Jesus himself has accomplished in his obedience, in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection. That's what he wants to give you, full reconciliation to God, his righteousness, forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. That's the gift. Adam just does this kind of self Um, assertive, selfish action, Jesus, though, gives in grace. And the result of that, then, are a number of effects that show us how much stronger Jesus is than Adam as a representative. So we see this. First of all, Jesus brings in something stronger than condemnation. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam's trespass leads to condemnation for all who are his descendants. That's everybody who's ever lived. And yet Jesus comes with this free gift of justification that overcomes or is stronger than the many trespasses. It's like Paul has in mind here all the sins that have been committed by so many different people over the centuries. And here comes Jesus, and through his death and resurrection, there can be justification. That is the assurance that you're not guilty before God's law. The condemnation has been removed, that you're righteous in his sight through faith alone. That's what Jesus did. That's how much better Jesus is than Adam. We also see Jesus is stronger than death. Verse 17, it is because of one man's trespass, Adam, that death reigned through that one man. We already talked about that. All of us look to the day that we're going to pass from this life. We can't escape it. But much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Right now, death reigns over us in this life. We can't escape it. But because Jesus is raised from the dead, those who receive him, notice it says, those who receive the abundance of grace, those who receive him have the hope that one day they will reign over death. Things are going to be completely reversed one day. Death reigns over us now. When Jesus comes again, you and I who belong to Christ are going to reign over death. We're going to be kings and queens over our enemy death. That's how much stronger Jesus is than Adam. And then verse 19. Jesus is also stronger than the disobedience of Adam. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, referring to Adam again, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's disobedience brings us into a situation where we are infected by his sin. We're born with hearts that are defiant against God. We're made sinners. But Jesus, in his obedience, makes us righteous. 
Jesus in his obedience to the law makes us righteous. You know, if I were to ask you this, friends, if I were to ask you, are you saved by good works? What's the answer to that question? Are you saved by good works? Everybody's shaking their head. The answer is yes. It's just not your good works. You're saved by Jesus' good works. Somebody had to obey the law for salvation to be offered. Somebody had to do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. Adam couldn't do it. But Jesus did it through his obedience. Do you see that in verse 19? By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the man's, one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We're forgiven of our sins, not just by Jesus' work on the cross, his shed blood and his death. Absolutely, that is what forgives us of our sins. That's the ground of our justification. But in addition to that, our salvation comes from his perfect, faithful obedience to God's law. We call it the act of obedience of Christ. There's a guy named <clears throat> J. Gresham Machen, who is a very famous leader, theologian in, in our tradition. He started the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We're Presbyterian Church in America. We have a lot in common with the OPC, but uh, some differences. But uh, Machen in the 1930s started the OPC. And he was uh, a, a real tireless, um, faithful servant of the church. And as the denomination was started, there were small congregations who were struggling. And so he would go to help these small congregations. And there was one congregation in North Dakota that was struggling. And Machen was overworked at the time. He was exhausted. But he had a heart for this church, and he wanted to go up and help the church. And his colleagues told him, you shouldn't go. You need to get some rest. And he went anyway. And so he goes to North Dakota in January and gets pneumonia. And it ends up taking his life. And so he's <clears throat> lying there in bed, and a good friend of his was a, a guy named John Murray. And as he's dying, he telegraphs this to John Murray. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Those were his last words. See, this is the kind of thing that can bring hope to you in the hardest, darkest, lowest times. Particularly as you're facing death that Adam has brought into this world, you can cling to this second Adam who's come to undo everything that Adam ruined, to fix everything that Adam broke, to obey where Adam disobeyed so that you can have the hope that you're not going to be condemned by God's law. Then Paul sums this all up here in verse 20 with what might be my favorite verse in the Bible. I probably have said that many times. I have a lot of favorite verses, but this is certainly one of them. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Isn't that so good. That, that's just summing it all up. Jesus is stronger than Adam. Life is stronger than death. Grace is stronger than sin. 
If you've ever wondered, friends, if you've ever thought, you know, I, if you've ever been worried, maybe the sins I've committed are just too serious. Maybe I've committed them too frequently. Maybe they are too numerous. Maybe I've used up the grace of God. Maybe God's mercy has come to expire for me. Maybe I've cried out to Him for forgiveness one too many times. He's tired of hearing me. There's no more grace left for me. If you've ever thought that, you have a beautiful and wonderful contrary notion given to you here in the Scriptures. Where your sin increases, grace abounds all the more. There's always grace for you. Always. If you're wrestling, you're thinking there's something going on in your heart and in your mind, it's a sin you've been bearing, you don't want to confess it, you don't want to admit it, you're walking away from God, you're running from Him because you just think there's no grace for you, go to Him, confess your sin, and ask for His forgiveness, and there is more than enough grace to cover your sin. So musicians, if you want to come forward, let me just conclude by saying this. <clears throat> what kind of, what, what's being said here is that there is one dividing line through all of humanity. One major dividing line. And it's not between the rich and the poor. It's not between male and female. It's not between conservative and liberal. The major dividing line from God's perspective is between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. All humanity and all nations throughout all time can be divided up into those two groups. Everybody is in Adam by birth, but some, even many, can be in Christ by faith. If, if you are still in Adam, if you are not a Christian today, if you haven't confessed your sins to Jesus, you haven't received Him as your Savior, you haven't committed yourself to Him, you are in Adam. Adam is your representative. Adam represents you before God, and you are under God's condemnation. But by turning from your sin and receiving Jesus, placing faith in Him, you can have the assurance that Jesus is your representative, He is your advocate, He is your defender, and He will go to the Father on your behalf. You don't have to represent yourself. That's good news. Jesus will represent you, and He is the only one who can make things the way they're supposed to be. And He will do that in His timing and in His wisdom. Jesus, come quickly. That'll be a wonderful day when that happens. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the richness of the revelation of the truth in your scriptures. And I pray that these truths would resonate in our hearts as we look to you, Jesus, the second Adam, who is stronger than all sin and death and the curse. We praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.